Jasmine Tadavia DiRepentigeni of Hull, Georgia, had an out-of-body experience during surgery in 1979 and in 1991. Robin Michelle Halbertier of Texas City, Texas, had a near-death experience as a newborn in 1969. And in 1932, cartoonist Arthur E. Jensen was in a serious car accident and also had an NDE. Different people, different situations, different times, but they all saw similar things in their near-death experiences. Jasmine and Robin saw a bright light and described feelings of warmth, love, and safety. Arthur described a feeling of being home and not wanting to leave, and Jasmine wanted to join her spirit and follow the light. Arthur and Robin were both told they had to return and finish their life on Earth to fulfill their purpose. Jasmine had a sense that she could change her life. All three of our NDEers described what they saw as hyper-real. And they all saw human beings. Figures with similar shapes to us, but more radiant, more alive, and more beautiful. They returned to life with purpose, energy, and intention. They noticed figures with rays of light, or radiance, or halos. And those experiences aren't unique to just these three people. These types of themes in NDEs are so prevalent that a questionnaire to assess the validity of NDE reports was designed around common experiences like these. It was developed by NDE researcher Bruce Grayson. But why this consistency? Religion and science seem to struggle with answers that explain these experiences and their regularity. Scientific American wrote that these experiences are shared across a broad range of cultures and religions, so it's not likely that they are all reflections of specific religious expectations. That article went on to share several studies comparing NDEs to drug-induced experiences, trying to find correlations to analyze what occurs in their brain chemistry. We think the brain chemistry is just one part of the story. Could the reports of profound spiritual experiences be just as real and important as what happens to the body on Earth? Yes, that event is actually an interaction with the afterlife. And the afterlife, as described by Swedenborg, has a structure to it that explains exactly why things in NDEs happen like they do. For example, both Arthur and Jasmine noticed white clothes. Jasmine's spirit wore a white glowing gown, and Arthur noticed his companions wore white clothes and had flowers in their hair. Swedenborg wrote that clothes in the afterlife spontaneously portray the state of a person's mind, and white clothes portray a mind that has been freed of negative things. Jasmine noticed she had a halo, and Robin saw a luminous figure glowing with rays of light. Robin noticed that the figure spoke with her telepathically. All these things are conditions of the afterlife, but only of certain states. For example, a circle or halo around the head denotes intelligence. The appearance of one's surroundings are direct reflections of that person's state of mind and deepest loves, and those loves visibly emanate from individuals. So their state is clear to anyone who sees them and understands the meaning of the signs. The heightened sense of realness that our survivors experienced was no illusion. It's because they were able to see spiritually. Spirits experience everything much more deeply and vividly because they are no longer limited by having to sense things through physical bodies. Robin, Jasmine, and Arthur all saw brilliant light and felt warmth and love. God's love is the warmth they experienced, and the light is God's wisdom. Both permeate everywhere in heaven and are due to God's manifestation as the Son of Heaven. So there's a start. Let's look deeper into a framework of meaning that may account for more aspects of NDEs. Plus, we'll hear PMH Atwater, the researcher who documented these case studies, talk about how near-death experiences are just the beginning.
The consistency of NDEs or near-death experiences. Have you checked out near-death experiences? You, I think you should. I, I feel like, I don't know if there's anything that matches how cool near-death experiences are. They are extremely moving and also grassroots. This is something that is happening. Nobody's telling them to happen. There's no organization behind it. It's universal. It's applicable. It's amazing. They, they, they are the, probably the best experience you could imagine. But people have them and can actually then end up isolated afterwards because the world they come back to here, we don't necessarily have the right catcher's mitt to catch a, a fastball of light like that. I mean, the religious models that we have are often in boxes and relatively stale and don't match up with the experiences these people are having. And scientific understanding is often applied to try to explain away near-death experiences. So where's the home for these people that have had these experiences? Well, we hope in this channel that we can contribute a little bit to a framework through Swedenborg's insights that hopefully gives context it lets these experiences fit into a larger world. And we want to look at three of these experiences. Uh, in the intro, we mentioned them. They come from this list of NDE case studies by PMH Atwater. You can check out the article these came from on the IANS website. And they took that from Atwater's book, Beyond the Light, that looks for common themes in near-death experiences. So we want to find these common themes and how those match up with Swedenborg. Because if, if you find common themes in the world around us, the physical world, it's because there's some law or some principle driving them. So can Swedenborg give us the principles that drive the pieces of these amazing near-death experiences? Can we find a framework for people and can we apply this stuff to our day-to-day -day lives? It's a lot, but I think we can do it. All right, so let's, let's take a listen to an abridged version. We summarize these three accounts of these near-death experiences that people just like you and me had. Jasmine had an out-of-body experience during surgery. While she floated over her body, she could hear everything said and done in the room. She saw that she did not have an oxygen mask on her nose, that the tube they gave her was choking her, and that she had been given too much anesthetic. So she worked hard to move her right arm on her physical body so that she could pull out the tube from her mouth. But she was watching from her spirit body, so moving her arm was almost impossible. After a great deal of effort, she managed to pull out the tube, and the staff made the necessary corrections to save her life. In another experience, Jasmine saw her spirit, dressed in a white gown, loose, free-flowing, and below the knee. She described seeing a halo around her spirit, and felt warmth and love from her spirit. Her spirit moved towards a bright, warm light, and she felt torn between wanting to join her spirit and move towards the light, or to stay on Earth. She stayed and felt ready to restart her life, but has since felt frustration about how and where she can explore what she experienced. Robin Michelle had a near-death experience as a newborn. She was born premature with hyaline membrane disease, and everyone was sure she would not live. She remembers seeing a brilliant bright light like the sun and recalls a sensation of floating in the beautiful light. She saw a human figure so bright she couldn't distinguish his features surrounded by light rays. She felt safe, loved, and protected. She was told telepathically by the figure that she had to go back, it wasn't her time, and that she had a purpose to fulfill. And, quote, I could come back after I completed it, unquote. 
Today, Robin Michelle feels called to help others understand that there is nothing to fear about death and wants to talk to share her experiences and knowledge with the terminally ill. In 1932, materialist and cartoonist Arthur E. Jensen was in a serious car accident. The driver was unharmed, but Arthur was injured and lost consciousness and slipped into a near-death experience. Arthur saw a beautiful world, beautiful beyond imagination. He saw snow-capped mountains, radiant shimmering lakes, vivid grass, a grove of trees. The scenery was so wonderful, it defies description and it seemed to be alive. He met people dressed in gossamer loincloths that looped over the shoulder, their hair decorated with flowers. They told him he was dead and that they had once lived on earth too. They pointed out to him that he was translucent and so was everything around him. He began to feel a sense of familiarity like he was home and had been there before. He did not want to leave, but was told that a time of great confusion would come and people would need him. He could come back after his work was done on Earth. So we got these three stories, and they're from very different people, different time periods, but there's these themes that are common to all of them. And what Jasmine, Robin, and Arthur experienced is actually not even unique to the three of them. There's so much consistency in near-death experiences that people in this case, NDE researcher Bruce Grayson created questionnaires. He's got one that uses these 16 questions about what happened during the experience to determine the extent of the event. And if you score a certain number of points, then you're tr it's treated as a near-death experience. This scale measures these, there's a repeated sensations, repeated events, repeated visions, repeated feelings in near-death experiences. There's these common themes uh, like those that our three friends described, and they define these categories based on the number that a person experiences. So you can study this stuff because there is so much consistency to it. Even the Scientific American reports that there's consistency in these experiences. They say accounts of near-death experiences are remarkably consistent in character and content. The content of those experiences famously includes memories of one's life flashing before the eyes. Also the sensation of leaving the body often seeing one's own face and body, blissfully traveling through a tunnel toward a light, and feeling at one with something universal. These experiences are shared across a broad range of cultures and religions. So it's not just the religions, religious people seeing what the religions told them to see. And if you want to look further, if you feel like, I still don't feel like you've been rigorous enough in your research, here's some more studies that qualify and quantify the repeated aspects of near-death experiences. And we here at Off the Left, I think that much of these repeated aspects in, that individuals see in their near-death experiences can be explained through the system of correspondences that Swedenborg recorded. So let's look at how the things mentioned in these three particular accounts show up in the world that Swedenborg describes. The Son of God. Yeah, that's a pun. And we're not the first people to make the pun. Are you still watching? Everybody talks about light at the end of the tunnel. That's a cliche because it's become such a part of our culture because there's so much of it in the near-death experiences. And at the core of many of these near-death experiences, even if you don't see the tunnel, there is often this experience of being surrounded by, people talk about light and they talk about love. You put those two things together, light and love. Why? Well, Swedenborg talks extensively about God as a son, S-U-N. 
radi- like in the spiritual world, God is manifested at, as a sun that radiates the light of truth and the warmth of love. So when you're in this light and love, it's because literally spiritually there is light of understanding and love from God coming out like the sun does that for the physical world. God does that for the spiritual world. Check out our show, God Used a Specific Design to Create Heaven. We have a whole section in there about God as the sun. But for right now, let's drill down a little more into this correspondence between warmth and love. This is from Secrets of Heaven. The warmth, that warmth means love, becomes clear from the fact that love is called spiritual warmth and by the fact that even in everyday speech, a person's whole affection is meant by his increasing warmness. So we sense this, we talk like this. The same is further clear from the fact that love and its affections show themselves as a type of warmth in man's interiors and also in his exteriors and even in his actual bodily parts. You can feel like a warmth in your chest. Indeed, that warmth has no other origin in a person when it is flowing out from his interiors. But as is the nature of the love, so is that of the warmth. Celestial love and spiritual love are what produce genuine warmth. So those are two kinds of love that are more and more close to God, but when you get to divine love, which is universal love for the whole human race, that's where you get this amazing warmth that you want to hang out in. And there you have not only the reason why people see light and love together, but also it explains why we feel like we do here and talk like we do here. So the warmth is love. And who wouldn't want to live? Everyone here wants to live somewhere warm. I do, but I don't actually live there. And But there you have people experiencing this God warmth and they want to live there or they feel like they already do. Arthur talked about being home in his experience, even though that was his first experience. He'd never been there before. Jasmine talked about, I I don't even know if I want to come back or not. It's because the spiritual world where those people are is our actual home. This is from heaven and hell. All heaven is differentiated into communities on the basis of differences in the quality of love. And every spirit who is raised up into heaven and becomes an angel is taken to the community where her or his love is. When we arrive there, we feel as though we are in our own element, at home, back to our birthplace, so to speak. Angels sense this and associate there with kindred spirits. When they leave and go somewhere else, they feel a constant pull, a longing to go back to their kindred and therefore to their dominant love. This is how people gather together in heaven. Why does our stuff that feels like home here feel like home? It's because you know it and you love it, right? But there, it's not the things around that you're comfortable with, like not, oh, I, I, I know that sofa. It's what you love is there. It's what you really believe in and love. So, of course, that's going to feel not just beautiful, but it's going to feel like home. What I really enjoy about Swedenborg is it provides another data point. It provides additional context, historical context. Um, If you've heard of Life After Life by Raymond Moody, in there he relays a number of historical contexts for the the near-death experience. And that gives it more believability and richness and seeing it from different perspectives and different historical timeframes is really very valuable. And for me, uh, that helps bring a, a believability and a foundation, a depth to it. And 
the corollaries, the parallels, the correspondences, as you all like to say, between what Swedenborg relayed, what he brought through, and what we've been learning for the last couple, you know, 40, 50 years here with the, the, the modern resurgence of the near-death experience uh, awareness. It's, it's very, very well aligned. And I enjoy that. A tiny bit of historical context of my own. Um, I first encountered Swedenborg when I was in college and I was traipsing through the Boston Common one afternoon and, and uh, somebody from the Theosophical Society in Boston stopped me and said something like, are you happy with your life? And I said, yeah. And he said, would you like to be happier? You know, so he had his patter down. But um, he said, you know, we're right over here. They're right off the common. I don't know if they still are, but back then they were. This was back in the late 70s. And I went in and, and checked out their bookstore. I've always had this deep interest in spirituality, and I found Heaven and Hell. I was like, well, there's an interesting title. Um, and I looked into it, and I was reading it. It's just, it was a little hard to get started. For me, I need a bit of an entry point. And so, I, you know, I, I skimmed sections, read some stuff, put it away. And then some years ago, I guess uh, five-ish years ago, I stumbled on your channel um, on YouTube, and I was like, oh, interesting. And I'm just a sponge for spiritual stuff. And, and that got me, that gave me the entree to Swedenborg. And then I had already been deep into near-death experiences and all that that brings to the, to the understanding of our spiritual nature. And so the Swedenborg material has helped round that out. Your mind clothes you. In the afterlife, everything about us reflects who we really are. Everything around us, everything we're wearing even, it all reflects what we love and what we believe. So our whole spirit, our surroundings, these are all correspondences of our state of mind and being. So it's not you're trying to put an image out there, your image is out there. And this even applies to our level of opacity, which Arthur noticed himself with his companions during his near-death experience. Swedenborg talks about it here. If people have given the divine, so what makes you more see-through? If people have given the divine credit for everything and regarded nature as relatively dead, simply subservient to spiritual concerns, and if they have convinced themselves of this, they are in heavenly light. Again, heavenly light because you understand things correctly. And everything that presents itself to their eyes derives a kind of translucence from that light. In that translucency, they see innumerable shadings of light that their inner sight seems to drink directly in. This is how they perceive deeper pleasures. The objects in their houses look like diamonds with similar variegations of light. So, diamonds are see-through. I have been told that their walls look like crystal and are therefore also translucent, and that within them one can see what look like fluid forms representative of heavenly things, again, with constant variety. Why? Is it because you're rich? How do you get a house like that? This is because this kind of translucence corresponds to an intellect that has been enlightened by the Lord, with the shadows that arise from faith in and love of natural things taken away. So you clear out your mind, let God's truth come through, it reflects all around you. For more about even those houses in particular, see our show, A Day in the Life of an Angel. Also, clothing. Jasmine and Arthur saw people in white robes. 
Is that just because that's what you'd think angels wear? Why white robes? Swedenborg says that our clothes reflect our state of mind, our current condition. It can even reflect our intelligence. This is from Heaven and Hell. Angels' clothes reflect their intelligence. I told you. So all the people in heaven are dressed according to their intelligence and the different kinds that they have. The most intelligent wear clothes that gleam as though a flame, some radiant as though a light. Think about a warm light versus a bright white light. The reason the garments of some angels gleam as though a flame, while the garments of others shine as though a light, is that a flame corresponds to what is good and light to what is true because of that good. Both of those are cool, but they're different. They're different to interact with, and they lend, them, they lend themselves to different outfits. Swedenborg even says particularly that white robes portray a state of having been purified from evils. So after, it's a process anyone can go through. Once you or I go through that, the white robe is a reflection of that. We did a whole show about the clothes in heaven. You're welcome to check that out for more specifics there. Swedenborg also learned that, yeah, angels can have halos or auras around them, which are also reflections of the state and character. These auras are similar to what Jasmine described when she said that they had these little halos. This is just a little clip from Swedenborg's conjugal love or marriage love. At that point, I asked what the circles around the heads represent. They represent intelligence, they replied. So it's not just you have a halo because you're an angel. The halo is a representation of this, again, this shining intellect that is part of the mindset of heaven. Swedenborg groups in these halos with what he calls auras, which is basically your heart and mind projected around you, emanating out from you. For more about that and per- perhaps this intense radiant aura around the figure that Robin spoke with, see our show, The Nature of Auras. I'm telling you, everything that you find there has this whole long explanation from Swedenborg. But what's really fascinating is this sense that people have of everything being more real. You think you're floating out of your body, you're in another world, it's heaven, you can see through the walls and it sounds like a dream, right? But it's not. It's more real than real. Swedenborg tells us that spirits can see and feel things on a level that we can't even imagine. And this is the same thing that people who have survived a near-death experience commonly report. Swedenborg talks about it this way, Secrets of Heaven. Let people beware of falsely assuming that spirits do not possess far keener sensory powers than they did in the life of the body. From thousands of experiences, I know that the reverse is true. When, therefore, the body has been laid aside... Sensations are far more excellent and perfect because here we're we're essentially running through a filter that we already are spirits. That's the consciousness that we're native to, but we're going through this body, which is a great thing. I can do a lot of stuff, but it's, it's a filter and it's got, sometimes it's doesn't, not quite working right. All, you know what kind of stuff they can have when you're trying to work through your own body and, and trying to keep it from falling apart. But we're really spirits. So taking that off is like, think about even if you have really high resolution VR goggles on, when you take them off, you realize, oh, this is what reality is. So this phenomenon of heightened senses or hyper-realism is so consistent in all near-death experiences that we have three other studies we found on this aspect alone. If you feel like you've got to go see more, check these out and educate yourself. To wrap this show up, and really to wrap it forward, we got to sit down with PMH Atwater. She's the researcher who cataloged the three stories that we focused on in this episode. And here's what she had to say about the near-death experience 
and what it means going forward. The near-death phenomenon itself is just one part of a greater puzzle or picture. That's because always you have after effects. There are the physiological and psychological after effects. There is a pattern. And that pattern is huge. Um, that really determines how that individual is able to handle the, um, the episode and where they go afterward, what happens to them afterward. It is really the pattern of after effects that uh, determine or validate the near-death experience, not the other way around. So when we're looking at that larger picture, again, the near-death experience is just part of the picture. We've got a much richer and larger after, after effects, when, what comes later. Sometimes people have other experiences. Sometimes they get into um, spiritual experiences. Sometimes they go the way of maybe Kundalini or what have you. Uh, they begin to open doors. They begin to knock on doors. They begin to discover that this world is just absolutely incredible. And, and that um, their, their capability, um, what is open for them, begins to broaden in ways they absolutely never thought of. So think of the near-death experience as sort of that spark, that initial blow or that initial push, um, that initial light-filled um, um, that initial light-filled adventure that begins to to force you to realize um, that there's a lot more to life than you. There's a lot more to life than you thought there was. Um, there's a lot more to your life and the way it plays out. And the, and the people in it, and every thought you ever thought, it, it's like, whoa, it's like, yeah, you know, it, it's like, it just never occurs to you that there's something else beyond that. You know, certainly most of us have, have heard of, uh, of the Bible and, and the various other books, and there's prayer and and, and we realize that there are all kinds of different kinds of experiences in this world. Um, but it doesn't really occur to the average person, in fact, most people, that that can happen to you and it can happen to you right now and it can happen to you in a very big way and your life will never be the same again. I love that. That is so cool and so well said. And I think that same push that she's talking about for learning, for expanding, for finding what's out there, for opening those doors that people who have the near-death experience go on, you and I can do that as well. 
you know, we can learn from the experiences people have, from other things that push us in that direction, to go out and find this light and love-filled world and, and make ourselves a bright, shining part of it. Off the Left Eye is Curtis Childs, director, producer, and host. Karen Childs, writer, community manager, and host. Chelsea Odner, writer, production manager, and host. And Jonathan Rose, host and series editor of the NCE. Shada Sullivan is the voice you love in our narrations. Stuart Farmer is our technical director. Matthew Childs, our video art director. Our motion designers are Meng Jong and Jesse Johnson. Reed McArdle made our music. Devin Osblond is our production intern. Cara Dom is our Latin consultant extraordinaire, and Chris Dunn is our digital marketing magician. And you are our much-loved listener. And now you can journey with us all week. Every Monday's Swedenborg and Life episode, including this one, has a week's worth of content lined up to support you in your exploration of these life-changing ideas. All video content premieres at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time on the Off the Left Eye YouTube, Facebook, and Simplecast channels. On Tuesdays, find us on social media or go to offtheleftye.com to get custom downloadable art paired with the week's topic to ground you through the week. On Wednesdays, join us to dig a little deeper into the week's topic with news from heaven. On Thursdays, we want to hear from you. We'll be sharing a new reflection question weekly on our community tab and social media channels. Then join us for Swedenborg Live on Fridays for our panel Q&A show. And listen every Sunday to the Inside Off the Left Eye podcast to always know what we're up to and what you can look forward to. If you want to help sustain Off the Left Eye's operations, consider becoming a monthly donor today. And right now, we have a matching gift challenge from a very generous donor couple where dollar for dollar up to $10,000 will be matched when you make a new or increased monthly donation. You can provide a direct gift or restrict it to our new Off the Left Eye endowment fund. Giving to the endowment fund is a great way to guarantee that your gifts live on to help Off the Left Eye forever. Go to otle.cosvox.com to become part of our essential community of donors. From all of us here at Off the Left Eye, we thank you.